When it comes to bioscience, Arizona has an edge. From genetics and the study of diseases, to testing out miracle drugs, or how cacti are being impacted by climate change. And increasingly, scientists are turning to real people, like you and me, to help gather data. And that new information can yield interesting results, both amazing and sometimes alarming. It is this quest for more information that has led to the second season of our podcast, The Lab, in conjunction with Valley 101 at azcentral.com. Our reporting will take you across the state to answer bioscience questions, big and small. In each episode, you'll find out how the answers affect real people, scientists or not. Arizona is known for its hot temperatures. By 9 a.m., we're in the 90s, and we won't be in the 90s for long before triple digits start showing up. We are going to make our way toward a high of 107. Outside right now, we've already hit 114, two degrees off the record. 112 today above our normal high of 106. The mercury soared into triple digits for the third straight day. In Phoenix, it was so hot, more flights had to be canceled. Extreme temperatures are par for the course in our state. But there's another side to Arizona's heat that isn't quite obvious at first glance. When you get a real sweet flavor and a little bite behind it, it's awesome. We got some that are really mean. They just, they, they hit you and they don't turn loose. Welcome to season two of The Lab in conjunction with Valley 101. I'm your host and producer, Kaylee Monahan. And I'm into producer, Logan Stanley. Today, we're exploring Arizona chili pepper industry, what makes them so hot, and ask if they're being appropriated or not. When it comes to peppers, Arizona might not be the first state you think of. After all, our neighbor to the east, New Mexico, claims the title of pepper capital of the world. But the Grand Canyon State is known on a national scale for the varieties of peppers grown here. Ed Curry is regarded as a transformational figure in the industry due to his work with genetics. Alongside his partner, Phil Villa, the pair are known for creating a uniform, mild pepper used nationwide as Arizona 20. Curry also claims on his company website that, quote, in the farming industry, it is said that the genetic origins for 80 to 90% of the chilies grown commercially in the U.S. can be traced back to Curry's farm in Arizona, end quote. The 1,200-acre farm can be found in Pierce, a community near the Sulphur Springs Valley in southern Arizona. This is the home of their business, Curry Seed and Chili Company, which started with Ed's father, Noel. Former Arizona Republic reporter Melina Walling spoke with Ed last year. He moved here from Oklahoma in 1952 and farmed cotton for a little while. And then in 1957, he got a chance to grow some chili. It was somewhat of a failure. By 1958, he had learned enough to solve that. He got a stand, didn't make the greatest of crop, but certainly made a crop. And that was in 
1958. So my dad edged his way in. Well, the first thing that became paramount interest to him was was there was no good seed source. The seed was just a mess. While farming has always been instrumental in his life, there was one moment when Kerr was a young child that had a lasting impact on his life. It was during a plane trip over New Mexico, so famous for the Hatch Green Chili that it's even on their license plates. At eight years old, we flew to Hatch, New Mexico, and they were raising registered certified New Mexico 6-4 seed. And that's where we, I first realized, wow, this is different. If these people produce seed, there's something special. And it seemed a bit magical to me as a kid. I always held that interest. So then as I got older, I started growing seed blocks for the breeder, Phil Zia, from Ortega. And everybody knows the Ortega brand. And that really inspired me. And then I got to working with Phil, and he started teaching me stuff. Even though that plane ride was nearly 60 years ago, the lasting memory is still fresh. I remember circling those fields and looking down on them and seeing the, the chili fields. And then we landed and we went to the field and, and looked. I remember that quite clearly. It hadn't froze yet. They were a pretty dark green with a little bit of red chili shining through it. I mean, I'm looking at chili right now that looked just like that. A seed was planted in Ed's mind, forming the roots that has led him to where he is today, as one of the top producers of chili seeds in the United States. But even though that's what he's known for now, it wasn't always that way. When his family first started growing chilies, things got off to a rough start. Terrible quality, all mm -hmm. kinds of mix. In mm -hmm. other words, the plants weren't uniform. One plant would have a, a hot-type chili on it. Another plant would have a mild. In fact, that's really... What put me in the seed business was we were the first ones to come up with a uniform mild chili. And that needs to be stated. That's what brought us to this business is that you know yourself. If somebody from back east is going to open a can of chili or be served a chili at a restaurant, the second they get one too hot, they're not going to eat it. They're done. And we all know that. And so when we solidified an uniformity of heat in chili, we were not bragging, but we were the ones that made the industry grow leaps and bounds because then they could sell chili to the north and to the eastern United States and to Canada. And Mexican food became more of a staple at that point. Now, 59 years after that fateful plane ride over New Mexico, Curry is the one supplying sea to the state that is known for its chilies. In fact, there's a good chance you yourself have either used or eaten a product that can be linked back to Curry Farms in some way. Not all chili companies in the state are like Curry's, though. Santa Cruz Chili and Spice Company, based in Tumacari, which is off the I-19, just south of Tubac, has had a long business relationship with the Curry's, and it's helped them be fruitful. They primarily received their seeds from Ed's farm to make their own products. Jeannie Neubauer is one of the owners of the company, and she spoke with us last year. 
that genetics is what Santa Cruz uses and huge parts of the chili industry and the food industry. And we're lucky in that, you know, we work with Ed and we've known him. I mean, his father used to grow chili for my father. The company has become well-known in the state for its chili powders. And it also sells salsas and barbecue sauces, all with a little effort on the advertising side. We sell all of our chili products, but we also sell 140 different types of spices. And this all has to do with people cooking more. They want better healthy ingredients. And so a lot of people are looking for spices and herbs to get some of the sugar and the salt and things like that in there and the fat in their diets. And we provide a certain amount of that. That's why I said chili paste is an excellent product for people trying to add flavor, but they don't want to have any sugar and they don't want any salt and all that. My customer base has primarily been Hispanic women and women that have been using our product for three or four generations. Because we really don't do any marketing. It's all kind of word of mouth. Over the years, Neubauer has noticed how American taste buds are changing as the United States has become even more diverse. People coming from India, people coming from China, people coming from South America and are used to slightly, you know, they're used to spicier food. Not only are new people coming to the United States, but people in the United States are traveling and they're tasting this stuff. Ed has firmly established himself as a leader in the chili pepper industry in Arizona, the Southwest, and the United States as a whole. With that accomplished, he has his sights set on promoting the health benefits that chili peppers have to offer. The mission has become almost biblical for him. People are trying to say there's no God. That's ludicrous. You can't see the number of gene types. I've seen change in my life and think there's not a God. And this thing's organized. How I would tie it together is that I've witnessed too many findings that were, they just, I don't know how to put it. I don't want to sound focus pocus. I'm not one of those religious people like, oh, God did this. God won't do nothing if we don't get in and work hard. But yet, does he give us vision and inspiration? Yes. The next thing, the next frontier is offering a product for biopharmaceuticals. See, the big pharma, big pharmacy fights us. They don't want this. They can't make money off the plants. How many advertisements, Melina, do you see on TV for some pill? But along with it is two-thirds of the advertisement is warning you against the side effects. We all know that, right? Well, on plant-based biopharmaceuticals, there's almost no side effects. It's amazing. And, and that... I mean, there's no cancer, there's no... I mean, because it's natural. God made it. You probably noticed, I started this thing with a prayer. We live life with a great faith. I pray for inspiration many times a week. We gotta have vision. We gotta see. Bimu Patil, who is the director of the Vegetable and Fruit Improvement Center at Texas A&M University, explained some of the health benefits of peppers. Pepper has vitamins, there are two types of capsinoids, 
which one is capsaicin, which is really very pungent. A lot of people like it. Some people in US don't like it. So we also develop uh, a method to separate some of these non-pungent components. They are called capsinoids. So those are all good for reducing obesity. Now there are some keratinoids, which has more potential in eye health. Bimu also mentioned that chilies have a positive effect on preventing strokes. When I say reduce means the chances of getting the stroke. So we want to make sure that whenever we talk, it is mostly prevention rather than cure. Even though we have evidences that you can cure some of these things, but we don't want to claim it too much. Bimu says that more work needs to be done in order to refine any potential curative properties certain foods may have. Just how big is the chili pepper industry in Arizona in economic terms? In the latest data available from the 2020 Arizona Agricultural Bulletin, $2.6 million worth of chili peppers, which is defined as all peppers excluding bell peppers, was sold in the state in 2018. And perhaps you're wondering at this point, what exactly is a chili pepper? For starters, it's classified as a fruit, not a vegetable. Both fruits and vegetables have seeds but, botanically speaking, fruits are the reproductive organ of a plant. Sounds weird, I know. Vegetables are placed in a much larger category and can include just about any edible part of a plant that isn't the fruit. Edible leaves, stems, roots, shoots, and flowers can all be considered vegetables. Yet, as a society, we simplified it to fruits are sweet and vegetables are savory. Strawberry and watermelon are fruits, corn and broccoli are veggies, easy. But take the chili pepper, for example, which is savory. This is where the confusion starts. There's even a difference in the kitchen. Tomatoes are, in the botanical sense, a fruit. With how we use them in cooking, though, they are defined as a vegetable in the culinary world. So next time you're in the produce aisle or at the farmer's market wondering if what's in your hand is a fruit or vegetable, the answer could be both. All peppers are in the same family, from sweet bell peppers and cayennes to jalapenos and serranos. The compound that makes chili spicy is an alkaloid called capsaicin, which is not found in any other plant. Glands in the pepper fruit produce this compound. The hotness of peppers is measured on the Scoville scale, which was invented in 1912 by pharmacist Wilbur Scoville. The scale goes from 0 to 16 million Scoville heat units, or SHU. Frank's Red Hot is relatively mild at 450 Scovilles. Tabasco comes at 2,500 Scovilles. Cholula is at 3,600 Scovilles. Pure capsaicin tops out at 16 million Scovilles. Oh, that's hot. That's hot. Bell peppers, which have no capsaicin, are at the very bottom with zero Scovilles. And the hottest pepper in the world currently is the Carolina Reaper at 2.2 million Scovilles. So here we have Carolina Reapers, the hottest pepper in the world, but probably that version on steroids. Like we have a monster version of the hottest pepper right here. Do you feel pain? Yes, 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 of course. What do you do to deal with it? Uh, Some people say that it's all in your mind. That's what I try to tell myself. (laughs) (laughs) Does it work? No, 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 it doesn't. But Ed Curry warns that too much heat can actually permanently damage an adult's nerve endings on their tongues. 
so you might want to think twice before you try that next spicy challenge. But how did chili peppers even become a thing? And why are they here in Arizona? And how did they get here? For that, we need to trace the roots of where chili peppers came from. According to some experts, wild chilies originated from Brazil. Others assert that they came from Mexico or from some other part of Latin America. Researchers at the University of Arizona report that domesticated chilies came from central eastern Mexico. Early wild chilies were initially small, red, and round fruits. Scientists at the Chili Pepper Institute at New Mexico State University say that chilies were first geographically spread by birds. And it turns out birds don't have receptors to taste the Scoville heat. That means the birds would eat the chilies, and the seeds were able to pass through bird guts unharmed. So the chili plants had a fantastic animal partner to help spread their seeds, and the birds got a tasty snack. The reason why chilies produce heat was to deter hungry mammals. But that clearly did not stop Homo sapiens from taking a bite. Mmm. Scientists and archaeologists in Ecuador have found evidence of chilies being ground on milling stones from around 6,000 years ago. Microfossil remains of chili starch have also been discovered in cooking pots and even on the house floors. In a study published by the National Library of Medicine and PLOS One in 2013, the researchers, including one from the University of Arizona, found that the use of chilies in Mesoamerica may date all the way back to 400 BC. So clearly, our love for the chili pepper is long-lasting. For some people, pain is pleasure. At least, that's what the authors of On Capsaicin, Why Do We Love to Eat Hot Peppers, wrote in Scientific American. Perhaps we seek out the painful experiences of snacking on chilies while consciously maintaining awareness that there is no real danger to ourselves. After all, people seem to enjoy and actively seek out many other sensations that are otherwise undesirable, but are ostensibly safe. The sensation of falling provided by roller coasters or skydiving. 
the feeling of fear and anxiety while watching a horror movie, the physical pain experienced upon jumping into icy water, or even the feeling of sadness that comes while watching a tearjerker. I'll take eating chili over skydiving any day. But back to the spread of chili peppers. While birds were and are responsible for spreading seeds around, including wild chili peppers, humans have taken it a step further. Different historians say that Christopher Columbus, yes, the one who sailed the ocean blue, was offered chilies by the indigenous peoples he encountered in the Americas. According to legend, when he felt the burn of the chili, he equated it to the similar burn one gets from black pepper. So he called it pepper. Columbus took these chili peppers back to Europe. And before long, they spread like, well, fire. It was the Portuguese and Spanish explorers that took chili with them as they ventured out to sea. And they are the ones responsible for taking it to Asia. As the editors of the book Chilies to Chocolate note, quote, so swiftly and thoroughly did the chili pepper disperse that botanists long held it to be native to India or Indochina. But all scholars now concur that it is a new world plant with origins in South America. End quote. As for how the chili pepper made its way to the Southwest, there are several theories. Some believe that it arrived through trade between the Toltec Indians of Mexico and the Pueblo Indians of the American Southwest. However, there is no evidence to either support or refute that idea. But we do know that the Pueblo were definitely growing chili peppers. Others hypothesized that the colonial Spaniards brought them up while on expedition in what would become Arizona and New Mexico. Okay, so that's the condensed history of the chili peppers migration. Here in Arizona, our love of chili peppers comes from our shared history with Mexico, both with its indigenous and later European descendants. The recipes that we know and love show the cultural exchange and also the deeply interwoven and complicated history of our region. So my name is Antonio José Basalada Silva. Antonio is an associate professor of Latin American studies at the University of Arizona. I'm also affiliated with the Department of Anthropology. I am a linguistic anthropologist by training, linguistic and sociocultural anthropologist. And I'm also affiliated with this, uh, the Department of Spanish and Portuguese and the food studies. To better understand the Chile's place in Arizona and cuisine, I needed to find out how food and culture intersect. So I called up Antonio on Zoom. <music> Food has always been connected to issues of power. Um, class, for example, you know, even in the pre-Columbia era, there was a division of class in terms of who ate certain foods, for example, who ate forms of animal protein as opposed to corn, etc., etc. This going back, 
But all these, if you think all these foods like corn, chocolate, we didn't invent these. These were, these are pre-colonial. As we've already learned, Mesoamerican people were already making use of chilies long before Europeans reached the American continents. The same goes for chocolate and coffee and even potatoes. As I said, food is integrated. There is a connection to food and food ways and eating to gender relations, to race relations, to political relations, to class relations. And uh, the idea of family, right? Food kind of permeates. At the same time, all these categories, all these social constructs, but they also end up influencing ways of eating, ways of cooking. So that's how it's extremely integrated. And the example of Argentina about that I, I use in my class about beef, it was at times food politics. It was like related to Argentine nationalism, to class in Argentina, like the, the idea that the poor has the right also to consume beef at the time. That's just one example. The type of food you ate showed not only where you lived, but your place in society. Were you a leader or part of the king's family? Then you probably ate the best foods. Were you a priest or religious figure? You might have access to special foods reserved only for your class. Over the millennia, cultures formed around the foods people ate. So food, in a way, is cultural capital. Food exchange and exchange of culture, learning other ways of culture and, and incorporating that into your own culture. This is the beauty of humanity. It's exchange. But along with that exchange is a history of colonization, first by the Spaniards in the 16th century in Central and South America, and then later in parts of the Southwest here in the United States. Then, about a century later, American settlers trickled in from the eastern seaboard. With colonization comes oppression and acts of claiming what belongs to another, or appropriation. When we hear of cultural appropriation, you might be thinking of Halloween costumes that let you dress up as another culture, like a Native American or Asian person. You also see it in both fast and high fashion. Even types of music, songs, or instruments can get whitewashed. The banjo, for example, is often stereotyped as a rural white instrument, which, side note, Appalachians are often mocked as hicks or hillbillies, and that is a whole nother issue. But as for the banjo itself, it came from the African continent originally. But food isn't always first of mind when it comes to cultural appropriation. After all, food and eating is often a communal act. And fusion foods are all the rage right now. So 
When is food appropriated? Antonio explains it this way. It's a difference between borrowing and stealing. There is a way that you can, of course, I'm doing this in very simple terms, but for example, food exchange. There's a lot of exchanges. It's great. This is beautiful. But like borrowing, we have to give back. We have to respect. We have to acknowledge. But what we see is different. And then I ask myself, how many of you know people who love Mexican food who eat Mexican food, who profit from Mexican food, and at the same time are so anti-Mexicans, anti-immigration. But in another very simplified way, If you enjoy Chinese takeout but are anti-Chinese, then are you not benefiting from another culture while not acknowledging it or even dismissing it? Same thing with Mexican food or Thai or Vietnamese. Instead of just demonizing the people or labeling things like, as you saw, we've seen like political leaders put the whole country against Mexico and Mexicans by calling Mexicans, you know, whatever, rapists or kind of thing, violence and stuff. Then that's when appropriation is really, really bad. It's like you benefit, you profit, but at the same time, you're racist, you're disrespectful with people who are, whose creativity provided, you know, the basis for for what you're doing as as a profit. How do chili peppers fit into this? Well, if you find yourself enjoying some hot sauce or chile rellenos, or even sprinkling tahini on all your food, just remember and give a nod to all the people who have made it possible to enjoy your spicy dishes. After all, it's the rich history that really adds the flavor to Arizona's favorite recipes. Next week on The Lab. I did. I lost a size. So I had just bought new clothes, and then I lost a size, and I had to go exchange things. And, I mean, that's great. Um, It is exciting. But at the same time, when you feel as nauseous as I do, the weight loss is not as exciting. Tune in on Monday to hear how one drug is changing people's lives, and not in the way it was intended to. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Lab. If you're listening on the Valley 101 feed, be sure to check out season one by searching The Lab on your favorite podcasting app. This episode was researched by former Arizona Republic reporter, Melina Walling, as well as our intern producer, Logan Stanley, and me, Kaylee Monahan. I also edited and produced this episode with help from Logan. Editorial help from Kathy Tulumello, Sean McKinnon, and Amanda Luberto. Audio oversight also by Amanda Liberto and web production by Karen Kurtz. Today's musical scoring came from Universal Production Music. You can support all of our podcasts by subscribing to them on your favorite podcasting app. 
leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to us. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AZC Podcast. The Lab and Valley 101 are Arizona Republic and azcentral.com productions. The Lab is supported by a grant from the Flynn Foundation. I'm Kaylee Monahan. And I'm Logan Stanley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.